Method School Committee, April 26, 2021, regular meeting, 6 p.m., pursuant to Governor Baker's March 12, 2020 order, suspending certain provisions of the Open Meeting Law, Chapter 30A, Section 18, and the Governor's March 15, 2020 orders, imposing strict limitations on the number of people that may gather in one place. This meeting of the Medford School Committee will be conducted via remote participation to the greatest extent possible. Specific information on the general guidelines for remote participation by members of the public and or parties with the right and or requirement to attend this meeting can be found on the City of Medford's website at www.medfordma.org. For this meeting, members of the public who wish to listen or watch the meeting may do so by accessing the meeting link contained herein. No in-person attendance of members of the public will be permitted, but every effort will be made to ensure that the public can adequately access the proceedings in real time via technological means. In the event that we are unable to do so, despite best efforts, we will post on the City of Medford or Medford Community Media websites an audio or video recording, transcript, or other comprehensive record or proceeding as soon as possible after the meeting. Additionally, questions or comments can be submitted during the meeting by emailing medfordsc at medford.k12.ma.us. Those submitting must include the following information, your first and last name, your Medford Street address, your question or comment. You can call in by using 1929-205-6099. Please enter meeting ID 915-0641-5713 when prompted. Member McLaughlin, if you could call the roll. Sure. <clears throat> Member Graham. Here. Member Kretz. Here. Member McLaughlin, present. Member Mastone. Present. Member Rousseau. Paul. Present. Did you not get that? No, we got it now. Member Vanderkloot. Present. Mayor Longo Karn. Present. Seven present. Zero absent. Please all rise to salute the flag. I pledge allegiance to the flag, to the flag of, of the United, United States, States of America, America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, one nation under God, indivisible, indivisible with liberty and justice, and justice for all. April 12, 2021, school committee minutes. Motion of approval. And member Vandekloot seconded by. Second. Member Kretz, roll call, please. Member Graham. Yes. Member Kretz. Yes. Member McLaughlin, yes. Member Mastone. Yes. Member Rousseau. Yeah. He said yes. I heard him. Member Van de Kloot. Yes. Mayor Longo Karn. Yes. Seven the affirmative, zero in the negative. Minutes are approved. Number three, approval of bills, transfer of funds, and approval of payrolls. Motion of approval. I remember Van de Kloot. Second. Second. By Second. Kratz. Roll call. Member Graham. Yes. Member Kretz. Yes. Member McLaughlin. Yes. Member Mastone. Yes. Member Rousseau. Yes. Member Vandekloot. Yes. Mayor Longo Kern. Yes. Seven in the affirmative, zero in the negative. Approval of payrolls has been approved. Um, we have report of secretary number one, good of the order, offered by Member McLaughlin. 
Yes, thank you, Mayor. Um, the good of the order is a category under Robert's Rules of Orders um, that we had voted in earlier in the year, to, um, essentially at our first meeting of the month. Um, and I think on occasion it's been dropped, but moving forward, I would ask that it is included on the first meeting of the month. And generally it is to check in with the uh, school committee uh, as, a, as a group, um, as a whole, uh, to check in on the good of the order. How are essentially, how are things going? Are things going well? Are there things that folks feel we need work on? Um, uh, you know, are the meeting schedulings going fine? Like, is, it's an opportunity for community for the committee to offer up anything they have, both um, positive or you know things that need to be worked on. So, um, that's the good of the order. Mayor, Member Rousseau. Yes, thank you. I, I appreciate the good of the order today. Um, I would just like to suggest that we um, all take a refresher course on Robert's rules. Um, we typically allow members to speak for as long as they want to speak, which is actually a violation of Robert's rules. We don't let everybody have turns. They allow, some members will ask six or seven questions in a row, leaving the other members who may have had questions to sit there silently and look like they had nothing to say, which looks bad for those of us that came with a set of questions. Um, so I think as a, as a committee, we could do an awful lot better at acting like a committee instead of as individuals approaching an election. Mayor, member Vandekloot. Uh, yes, I, I uh, do agree that sometimes I, I think we would benefit by having um, some rotation, like a member might ask two questions and then we might go on to a next member rather than just, you know, having one member. Um, I think it might be more uh, engaging for, for all of us. Uh, the other thing is I, I just bring up, ten, you know, very diplomatically of saying our last meeting was six hours long. Um, we had something like 23 meetings in the, in March. Um, I think what we are inadvertently doing is um, taking over some of the roles sometimes of the people who uh, we respect um, and um, to, of doing their job. And we need to allow them to do their job and not take up so much of their time uh, with our meetings. And, um, I don't quite know how to, there's no way to legislate it, but I think we need to be very conscious as, as we get uh, now to this last part of the year about how many, uh, what our expectations are about additional meetings and the length of them. I agree with you, Member Van de Kloot. Member McLaughlin? Thank you. Um, I think these are you know, both uh, uh, through the chair, uh, my colleagues, I think these are both things that have been talked about, um, certainly, uh, you know, individually or amongst uh, less than a quorum with folks over time. So I think these are both items that need to be addressed. I would add that training in Robert's Rules of Order is, you know, highly recommended. It's a really important, it's what, how we operate and how we run. And, you know, I know when I came on as a new school committee member, there was no orientation. There was no indication of how to do things. Uh, we had to seek out training. And um, I know MASC has an event. Um, I don't know how many folks have gone. And, you know, I went to it that one time pre-pandemic and learned some things certainly there. But I think a course in uh, Robert's Rules of Order is definitely in order. And I would also say, We've talked about the length of our meetings in the past, and there has been some conversation about, you know, more frequently meetings for less time. And every and folks sort of send, tend to say that they think that that would just mean more frequent meetings that are longer, so they don't necessarily want to do that either. I don't know what the answer is there, but 
I think that clearly um, when we have to go two, sometimes three weeks in between talking to each other, it makes it very difficult because the items on the on the agenda get longer and longer, understandably. Thank you. Thank you. I know we have our student rep, Mr. Colin Bailey on the call. If you have anything to add, please jump in. Yes, I'm sorry, I forgot, Mayor. I was, uh, our new rules have uh, asked that we, uh, include the student rep in attendance. And I did have it. Um, I actually reached out to um, Colin Bailey to ensure that he was coming today. And then I um, I get caught up in the roll call and I apologize um, that there's the student rep here. So I will add him to the attendance role. Thank you. Thank you, Member Kretz. Oh, yes. Um, I just wanted to say that um, at sometimes I haven't been able to speak at some of the meetings because some other committee members have gone on to their questions and I'm looking at the clock and I'm looking at the number of residents that want to speak. And I just, you know, I just pass on my question. Um, so I, you know, it would be helpful if we all, you know, if we had a question, if there was some way that, you know, the first member would ask a question and then, then before they got to ask their second question, it could go through, you know, maybe with some of the other members, if they had a question. And um, I, in the past, I have expressed that I'm not in favor of more frequent meetings, I know that it sounds like it would be helpful, but I found that some of the details in the meetings that we have, they're very comprehensive and meeting every week and doing the minutes and posting the meetings, it's going to ultimately take the same amount of time and the administration is just going to be getting ready for meetings every single week. So I'm, I'm not in favor of meeting more frequently and adding on more frequent, shorter meetings. I just wanted to say that. Mayor? I think the mayor's not here now. Maybe she got booted out by mistake. Will we go with the vice chair in the meantime? Um. I will take the vice chair, uh, member McLaughlin. Thank you. Um, uh, through the chair, I would also agree, um, you know, I don't want more frequent longer meetings. <laughs> I just want to clarify that. Um, I am looking for, you know, I'm hoping that as, as part of the good of the order, perhaps we can come up with some suggestions of how to, um, how to, you know, make the meetings less than six, eight hours, especially as we're coming into budget season. Thanks. So I, I would suggest that we at least try, um, and when the mayor comes back, uh, we'll talk to her about of doing a rotation for questions to see how that works. Um, maybe, you know, a question, and if there's a follow-up point, uh, that would be understandable, but not a, a whole new question. Um, so do I see consensus just with a shake of your head, or is everybody willing to try that? Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. Uh, can we move on to the next order of business? And I don't, um, Superintendent, can you tell us what it is? Because I don't have it out. We can't hear you. Who's got the agenda right in front of them? Thank you. I have it in front of me. Oh, great. Mr. McLaughlin raised her hand. Uh, yeah, I just was going to say that I had the agenda in front of me as well. So um, the report of committees, behavioral health and special education subcommittee meeting, which is uh, myself, um, 
for the report and bear with me one second because I was going between tabs. It's going to take a second. <clears throat> uh, while, while you're looking for that, uh, Mayor, uh, what we decided was that we would ask you to, um, that we would rotate questions. Um, perhaps a member would do their question and there might be a potential follow-up to that question, but not a new question. And we would go through members and we'd like to try that out and see how that works. Sounds great. And uh, Melanie is going to give her report uh, uh, up yes, next. Number five. Sounds great, thanks. Sorry, I lost internet connection. Okay, thank you. Um, we, the Behavioral Health and Special Education Subcommittee met on uh, April 15th. We, uh, that meeting was for, there were several members present. Um, our, my uh, co, uh, my subcommittee members are member Rousseau and member Mustone, member Van de Kloot was also present um, in place of member Mustone. Um, the director of pupil services, Joan Bowen and um, director of guidance, Stacy Shulman attend these meetings regularly um, as does CPAC and several parents and other administrators. Um, we have scheduled a presentation to the school committee for May 24th, um, where we will put forward um, what we hope we come to terms with a recommendation um, at our next meeting for a proposed policy in our next meeting is, um, sorry, it's the meeting right before our May 24th meeting. So I don't have the calendar in front of me right now. I thought it was at the end of these minutes, it usually is, um, but I can get back to that. Um, and so we have been talking about building friendships and community in schools. And so we've had, you know, a lot of uh, meetings over the course of the year where members have come to the committee with various ideas and resources. And we've been talking about those. And um, one of the things that we're talking about is the common ground program that currently exists at the high school and potentially using that as a model of um, building friendships. They use a reverse inclusion model right now. Um, and so we would look to um, this next year at, you know, sort of showing what's happening right now because it's not actually a course, but potentially creating a syllabus, having the teachers, obviously, Mr. Skorker, Ms. Andre, um, potentially create a syllabus for an actual course that will work around building friendships and community. And we're still going to be pursuing the um, uh, best buddies and a number of things now that hopefully will, you know, be getting better through the pandemic and being spending more time, being able to spend more time uh, within the school and in the community to build those friendships, which are so important. And then we also uh, had the latter half of the meeting is behavioral health. And again, we will be presenting as part of our May 24th presentation on policy recommendations for behavioral health. So we were talking about the Sandy Hook promise, which currently exists in schools and um, requirements by DESE for mental health uh, training in our schools and behavioral health supports. Um, so we are looking forward to presenting to the school committee on the 24th, um, our recommendations. Any questions or comments? Can I get a motion to? Motion to approval. Thank you. Second. Second. Okay. Roll call. Roll call. Um, Member Graham. Yes. Member Kretz. Yes. Member McLaughlin. Yes. Um, Member Mastone. Yes. Member Rousseau. Yes. Member Van de Kloot. Yes. Mayor Longo Kern. Yes, seven the affirmative, zero in the negative. Minutes are approved. 
Number six, community participation. Any citizen in the audience may be given permission to speak once at a school committee meeting regarding any item on the agenda for up to three minutes on any one item. A community participation portion of the agenda is established, which will give any citizen the privilege of placing an item before the school committee or be heard on an, any item. Any item to be present presented must be submitted in writing to the superintendent of schools by the Wednesday prior to the scheduling meeting at noon with a maximum of five minutes allowed for any one presentation. Public participation emails, questions, or comments can be submitted during the meeting by emailing medfordsc at medford.k12.ma.us. Those submitting must include the following information, your first and last name, your Medford Street address, your question or comment. We have parent Maureen Ronane top topic to speak for up to five minutes on dyslexia. Does anybody see Ms. Ronane on? I do not. Hmm. Um, do we have any other emails in public participation? We do. Um, I have one email submitted by um, uh, William Gillio on Winthrop from Winthrop Street. It says, dear school committee members, this is a short but two-part email request. One, with all due respect, and after talking with many other Medford families who tune in to watch Medford Public School Committee meetings, we kindly ask that any and all subjects that do not pertain directly to Medford Public Schools, please be refrained from being discussed during the time of the meeting. We as parents tune in each meeting to keep up and stay in touch with what is going on within our school system, and we do not need updates on news stories that are going on within our nation that do not directly affect this school system. Um, Example, at the last meeting, the news of a 20-year-old man in Minneapolis who was shot by police when trying to flee while being arrested was discussed when this had nothing at all to do with the Medford Public Schools. There are many other city community meetings and other outlets that have the time and place for these types of discussions. Two, I also kindly request that at the beginning of each Medford School Committee meeting when reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, that a flag be present behind or in view of at least one committee member during the time that meetings are conducted on Zoom and not in city hall chambers where a flag is present. Thank you. Thank you, member Vandeklute. We're gonna move on because I don't see Ms. Ronane on the call. Number seven, report of superintendent. comments. Dr. Edward Vincent. Good evening, everyone. I hope everyone had a relaxing April break. During vacation week, both Administrative Professionals Day and Earth Day were celebrated. I would like to take this opportunity to thank all of our administrative staff for all their dedicated service to the Medford Public Schools. As I said in my communication last Thursday, often the administrative staff is the first face of the district welcoming families to our schools. They are instrumental in helping to keep our district running smoothly. We appreciate you and thank you for keeping all of us better connected to our Mustang community. To celebrate Earth Day, I would like to extend my thanks to Aggie Tudin, Medford's tree warden, 
who will oversee the planting of some trees along Steve Miller Way. Additionally, I would like to thank CCSR students, Babin Gill, Eleanor Nakara, Naomi Pierre, and Oprah Nakara, who volunteered this past week to transfer both strawberry seedlings and cabbage seedlings into unused flower beds in the Medford High School garden. Special thanks to Ms. Redder Smith for her guidance and support during this process. I want to thank all who actively participated in the Columbus School renaming process, either by submitting a new name for consideration or by submitting an application to serve on the renaming committee. It is my hope that this process will help to bring the community together as we move forward in deciding a new name for the school. National Honor Society Induction Ceremony. Our National Honor Society Induction Ceremony will take place this Thursday, April 29th at 7 p.m. via Zoom for our juniors only. I'd like to take this opportunity to recognize all our 37 students who have been invited to join this group. Despite the challenges of the pandemic, you are able to persevere academically and Thursday is our day to honor you. An in-person ceremony for seniors only will take place on Tuesday, May 4th at 7 p.m. in the gym. This is an invitation only event and we are following all Board of Health COVID safety guidelines. I congratulate our 49 seniors who are part of this cohort. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Ms. DePrizio, our National Honor Society advisor for supporting and encouraging our National Honor Society students. I'd like to share that 35 local organizations in Tufts host communities in Massachusetts have been awarded $35,000 in grants from the Tufts Community Grants Program. The annual grants are funded by donations from Tufts University faculty and staff. Two of our school-based groups were recipients of these grants. Our Center for Citizenship and Social Responsibility for Medford's food drive to help supply bagged groceries and necessities to Medford Public Schools families and the Strong Girls United Foundation, a student athlete mentor program at the Brooks School, which includes training materials and team shirts. The Medford Public Schools are grateful to Tufts University for their continued support. For everyone's information, Tufts University announced that it has acquired doses of Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine and is setting up a vac vaccination clinic for their students, faculty and staff in the Gantcher Center this week. Doses will be administered on April 28th through April 30th. In addition, the announcement by the University Infection Control Health Director, Michael Jordan, he also said that all students, all Tufts University students will need to be vaccinated before participating in on-campus classes or activities for next school year. I would also like to take this moment to thank Stop and Shop for their gracious donations of food bags to the Medford Family Network. At least twice a month, Stop and Shop delivers these bags to Medford Family Network, who distributes them to our families in need.
Speaking of the Medford Family Network, this Thursday, April 29th, they will be presenting the 10th annual Parent Cafe virtually from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. This important discussion will revolve around stressing resilience in times of stress. They are hoping for at least nine more parents to register. Those interested should contact Marie Cassidy at 781-393-2106. As you are aware, last Monday, all Massachusetts residents over the age of 16 are now eligible to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. Our Medford Public School nurses are encouraging parents to vaccinate their children for COVID-19 as an important measure toward reducing the spread of the virus. Parents are encouraged to pre-register their child or children for a vaccine appointment at one of Massachusetts mass vaccination sites at vaccinesignup.mass.gov. I'd like to say that all of our fifth grade students should now know which middle school they will be attending in September. Please note that orientations will be held for students and their parents or caregivers at the McGlynn Middle School on Wednesday, May 12th from 6 to 8 p.m. and at the Andrews Middle School on Thursday, May 13th from 6 to 8 p.m. More details to follow. I'd also like to announce that Medford Public Schools has temporarily suspended the use of Google Hangouts. Due to some um, misinformation or uh, cyberbullying and inappropriate exchange of information taking place on Google Hangouts, we have temporarily suspended the use of that platform until we are able to put in additional measures. So um, the temporary suspension of Google Hangouts is still in place while we are looking for um, additional security measures. Lastly, I feel I would be remiss if I did not mention the decision in the Derek Chauvin case. The jury returned guilty verdicts in the murder of George Floyd, which raises hope that our nation is changing for the better. According to a poll conducted by UMass Amherst, it is notable that a solid majority of whites, 56%, supported the verdict. In a nation with such a troubled racial history and present, it is extremely rare and perhaps unprecedented that a majority of whites support the conviction of a police officer for the murder of a black man said political science professor Jesse Rhodes, who helped conduct the poll. An Earth Day quote seems applicable here. We all share the same mother. It is about time we treat each other like family. I have said continually, continuously that we are one Medford, one district, the Mustang family. Yet too often in our world, black and brown lives are devalued. We must all understand that no matter the color of one's skin, we are all human. As our Vice President Kamala Harris stated after the verdict was read, today, we feel a sigh of relief. Still, it cannot take away the pain. 
A measure of justice is not the same as equal justice. As your superintendent, as an educator, and most importantly, as a mother, I have said that change is hard and can be messy, but it is necessary. Conversations about race and injustice are complicated, but must be had. So the quality of life is improved for us all. As Tyler Perry said last night at the Oscars, let us reject hate. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Edward Vincent. And number two, we have COVID-19 public health update and Metro Public Schools COVID-19 testing summary and update by nurse supervisor, Ms. Tony Ray, Ms. Miriam O'Connor, Board of Health Director, and Mr. David Murphy. Good evening, everyone. Um, I will provide the data tonight for the City of Medford and the Medford Public Schools. The City of Medford, the city is averaging 22.9 positive cases per day as reported on April 22nd, giving us a 1.19% positivity rate. As reported by the Board, Medford Board of Health, 25 children less than 19 years old tested positive for COVID-19 between April 18th and April 25th. In the Medford Public Schools, school nurses administered 4,684 COVID tests during the week preceding school vacation, three of which were positive a 0.06% positivity rate. We did not administer any tests during school vacation week. Testing resumed today in all schools with 227 pool tests submitted for analysis. I'd like to remind staff who received their COVID vaccinations that is, it is recommended that they continue weekly COVID testing. Vaccination prevents serious illness and hospitalization Vaccinated persons can still get the virus and spread it to others, despite not having symptoms themselves. I would also like to share a message from Dr. Rochelle Walensky, director of the CDC, who sums up the current COVID situation well. She says, we remain in a complicated stage. On one hand, more people in the United States are being vaccinated every single day at an accelerated pace. On the other hand, Cases and hospitalizations are increasing in some areas of the country, and cases among young people who have not yet been vaccinated are also increasing. Therefore, I thank all of the parents and the Medford Public School staff who proactively informed the school nurses of their vacation travel plans, provided COVID test results prior to returning to school, and followed the travel advisories. The good health of our school community depends upon the efforts of all students, families, and staff to follow recommended Department of Public Health COVID guidelines and advisories, including wearing of face masks, avoiding large gatherings, maintaining social distancing, and most importantly, staying home if you feel ill or if a member of your family tests positive for COVID. Thank you. Member McLaughlin. Thank you. Um, I, I also wanted to ask, I know um, we had the opportunity to speak last week um, to the chair, uh, Nurse Ray, and I know that uh, it had been mentioned that it'd be helpful to share if we have vaccine information. Do you want us, is, is there a 
anything that you're asking for students to do that or not do that? Like, I'm curious. So, so we are recommending that students over the age of 16 be vaccinated um, as per the current guidelines. Um, parents can sign their um, children up at the mass vac sites. I believe that website was put up in the um, on the chat um, earlier. Um, and we, we encourage all, all parents to, to vaccinate their children over 16. Okay, and I guess, may I, Mayor? I had a follow up. So I guess the question is, shall we send vaccine records to you if you or to the nursing office if they would like them? Yes, please. We we would like to keep track of um, students who have um, received their COVID vaccines. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Ray. Number three, we have an update on the fiscal year 22 budget presentation. Mr. David Murphy. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, I'm going to share a very brief deck, um, some of the material you've seen before, um, and that's not to be repetitive, but as I've said in previous budget presentations, um, because we know that this is a topic of significant interest to the community, and we wanna be sure that we're being um, mindful of that and, and various folks picking up the conversation at various uh, stages throughout the course of the budget development process. We want to be sure that we're keeping everyone as informed as possible, being as transparent as possible, and answering as many questions as, as clearly um, as, as we can. There is some new information in this, or at least um, some updates. And so uh, at the conclusion, I'll be happy to take uh, any questions that you might have. Um, one of the pieces that we've discussed over the course of the last several months, and I know it's been of interest to some members of the committee, is um, making sure that we're keeping track of the sequence that we're following. And so this is a, a simplified version of the flowchart that you saw at a previous budget update in February. Um, we're in the basically the top right corner in this timeline right now. Uh, we've completed, um, as it's stated uh, in, a, in a slide or two, about 25 uh, budget uh, internal meetings with our various departments um, and are, are moving toward the public uh, meetings that will take place with the Committee of the Whole over the course of the next several weeks. This is a modified version of a table I've shown you in the past um, related to this, the sources of funding and the budget development process with the Commonwealth, the City of Medford and the school district. Uh, I've added this fourth column to the right um, as I think most uh, of people, uh, certainly the committee knows and members of the community are familiar with um, the uh, sizable uh, amount of federal funding that will be flowing into cities and towns as well as school districts. And so we'll be touching upon that a, a little bit tonight uh, and the implications for that, that funding. This is an updated timeline um, I wrote to the committee on Friday. Um, we had initially planned to begin some of the public committees of the whole, whole meetings this week. Um, and a few things became clear over the course of the last two weeks or so. One, there's still a, a significant degree of uncertainty with regard to restrictions around the additional funding that will be coming in uh, and that and the degree to which that uh, has the potential to be intermingled with um, our operating budget um, there's there's a need for greater greater clarity and I, I know that I, I know because I've, I fielded several questions from members of the committee about um, how and uh, how that funding will be used and the, and the sort of um, the, the concept of, of essentially bifurcating the operating budget from 
the uh, COVID mitigation budget coming directly from the uh, federal government. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that tonight and um, what the, the strategic questions that will be coming before uh, the city and the, the school committee. But this is an updated timeline. Um, we did add one meeting at, at the end of this process. We tried to keep this, the dates consistent um, and we'll be sending calendar invites out to members of the, of the committee to make sure that that's built into your calendar. But we're, um, we're, we're thinking right now of a 7 p.m. start time to accommodate some of the subcommittee meetings that are scheduled on those days as well, earlier in the evening. And then again, the, the May 19th date was added um, because we thought it would be a good idea to have um, sort of a catch-all day in case uh, we run out of time uh, to the, to the uh, priority discussed earlier tonight about trying to uh, keep the meetings uh, more manageable. And so we have that as sort of a placeholder where we'll be able to pick up additional departments that need additional time to present or also for further discussion once the, the, um, uh, the, the multi-dimensional uh, budget has been, has been presented and hopefully gives the committee the full context to discuss. Um, this statement with regard to recognizing the, the one-time influx of funding, that's, that's something that we've discussed before um, and something that will be sort of a, a common thread as we get into the strategic considerations related to operating budget versus COVID uh, mitigation funding. And so um, the, as, we, as we get ready to open FY22, we've tried to keep you as uh, informed as possible with regard to the close of FY21. Um, this is not a major change since uh, I presented to you in mid-March. Um, we have, uh, a, a, we're comfortable with regard to our financial position as we, as we move toward the end of FY21. Um, I've said before that given the size of the budget, the, the sort of best practice um, target area is to finish somewhere between $100,000 and $300,000. We're a little above that right now. There are reasons for that. It has to do with um, some of the uh, substantial deficits in the revolving funds that are contingent upon revenue generation, which has been significantly, significantly diminished this year. Um, there's also been a few other variables. Uh, some COVID-related, some um, your sort of typical uncertainties that as you go through the course of the fiscal year that have, uh, in, in some cases, uh, turned out favorably for us. And so that's what puts us at about a $500,000 um, cushion, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, that is not to say we're able to release the, the current um, partial spending freeze. We're not in a position to do that because there are a few variables um, and potential uh, emergency funding issues that we have to we're keeping a close eye on infrastructure and otherwise. And so um, essentially we're in a good position, but not overly favorable. And, and the uh, main reason for that is again, um, the food services deficit in particular, which on paper is $730,000. Uh, I'm comfortable, I'm confident that that's going to uh, diminish over the next um, weeks and, and potentially month or so uh, as some unencumbered funds are released and as additional revenue is generated uh, as a result of additional students being in school. Uh, we do still have two internal meetings left this week. Um, I expect that those will, will wrap up by Wednesday or Thursday and we'll be in a good position to begin the public discussions next week. Um, in terms of planning for FY22, uh, we're gonna talk about this in a second, but there are two major sources coming directly to the school district, ESSER 2 and ESSER 3. The ESSER 2 number, that's the 2.3 million that we've um, discussed previously in the federal legislation that passed at the end of calendar year 2020, and the ESSER 3, um, which is uh, the subsequent federal legislation that passed uh, last month. 
So as we get into the um, spending priorities, um, all department heads and principals, uh, with the exception of that last group that I mentioned a minute ago that we'll be convening this week, uh, but all principals and all other department heads have been asked to focus on three specific areas with regard to budgetary priorities and how uh, we as an organization can seek to um, remedy the, the learning and opportunity gaps that were either caused or exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, and certainly there are priorities that are broader and expand beyond the particular challenges that have been caused by the pandemic. But generally speaking, we think of them in those, these three buckets as materials and infrastructure, personnel, and training and professional development, uh, and all within the context of the significant challenges that students are uh, experiencing as a result of the conditions under which they've gone to school over the course of the past uh, year plus. You've seen this before as well. Again, these are just the buckets, the priority areas um, that uh, we started the budget process with. They've been guiding our conversations and they will uh, play a large role in the information that's presented to you in the coming weeks. And then these are the three um, categories and this is the, the information that um, to some extent is, is new tonight. And um, these are approximations and they are a result of the conversations that uh, we've been having internally. Um, you can see there's a significant amount of variability and I'm happy to go into uh, more detail than, than is articulated here on the screen as to why there is that variability. But essentially there are a number of unanswered questions at this point as we look toward FY22. There are some things we know and that we feel very confident about. The first one being in, in what I'll call bracket one on the far left, we're looking at a, approximately uh, two or $2.1 million in fixed cost increases. And those are made up of three subcategories. First, to contractually owed compensation. Those are steps and lanes that are part of existing collective bargaining agreements. There are compliance obligations and things that we recognize that we will have to invest in in order to um, both uh, adhere to best practices and um, uh, fulfill all of our various obligations to students and families. And there are some emergency uh, infrastructure maintenance technology related um, expenses that we know um, we won't be able to defer past uh, fiscal year 22. So that's what makes up the bulk of that $2.1 uh, million that are, um, even if we do nothing different, if we make, if we have no strategic priorities, if we make no investments, and if we provide no compensation increases other than those that are contract which for which we're contractually obligated to provide, we're looking at about $2 million in increased costs. This second category, again, there's a range uh, because there are some strategic decisions that have to be made and there is some uh, uh, overlap between um, the, how we can potentially fund some of these priorities and there's a domino effect. So if we make one strategic decision, there's potential savings that, that are realized and so it's, it's impossible at this point to put a, uh, an exact number on what our instructional operational necessities will be, will be. But at this point throughout the development process and after uh, close to 25 meetings in which we've discussed all these issues, we can narrow it to a range of $500,000 to 1.75 million. Um, what that essentially means is that if the increase is less than $500,000, there are difficult decisions that have to be made and savings and efficiencies that have to be um, recognized over and above our sort of normal um, fiscal stewardship responsibilities to identify those efficiencies on a yearly basis. And if we're north of $2 million, again, with no compensation increases beyond those that are contractually owed, um, then you know, we're, we're at a, a, a particularly healthy position and we wanna make sure that we're making the most strategic use of all resources. In the third category, um, again, 
a lot of variability because there are things that are uncertain. Um, we have to make some strategic decisions about from a maintenance and technology perspective, what's the timeline in which we'll adhere to. Um, so that's that's one piece of it. There's also um, close to 10 collective bargaining agreements that are expiring this year. And so um, there are no contractually owed increases, but we're, we're beginning to, we'll be you know entering into those discussions with our bargaining partners in the coming weeks and months. And so we need to understand that there's, there's the potential cost um, as we go into those discussions as well. Um, and then obviously the, the uncertainty with re related to the federal funding, which we'll discuss on this next slide, which is that uh, neither the district nor the city have, have received the guidance that we need to with regard to restrictions around the SO3 funding. And so um, we know that there are a series of, of COVID mitigation related expenses that the district is likely to incur or not likely, it certainly has and will continue to incur. Um, and we're grateful to have uh, that funding available to us. But um, it's also the case that we have operating expenses that are going to um, escalate to some degree as, as explained in that previous slide. And so um, you've seen on the left, the information before about how the 4.3 million has been broken down uh, through our partnership uh, with the city and through the funding that's been made available, both from the federal government and from the state. Um, and this, and what we're looking at here with regard to ESSER 2 and ESSER 3, it's $7.6 million, which um, you know is a, is a healthy amount and something that um, we'll make sure that we make good use of in terms of those investments. It's also an amount that has to be spread out over a period of time. And so while it's always possible that there'll be additional uh, funding sources that will be realized, um, our planning really has to encompass the next two to three fiscal years. And so hopefully the economy improves, revenue improves. And so um, we're in a more favorable position in the coming years. But as of right now, um, we, we are not in a position to look at this as $7.6 million solely for fiscal year 22, which is just another piece of the equation that we have to take into account. And those bullet points you'll see on the right, that those are what you're likely to see as we begin to present on those priorities and, and begin to have those discussions with the school committee and uh, to inform the community. And so just uh, final uh, takeaways here, um, with regard to FY21, again, we're projecting a modest surplus, um, more or less in line with, with where we hope to, to finish the fiscal year. Um, we do have a food services deficit that um, at least for the moment is requiring us to maintain our current um, spending and hiring freeze partial spending hiring freeze. We are approving emergency expenses that are have a, a, a certain urgency with regard to this fiscal year. Um, the range with regard to the projected increase, um, I'm gonna estimate right now is 3.4 to 5.8. I understand that that's a, a wide window, uh, but again, there are a number of variables um, ranging from collective bargaining to the federal stimulus to um, potential other uh, efficiencies that we're able to recognize um, and, uh, and force internally. Um, and so that's, that is what that, that Delta is, uh, represents and what it's attributable to. Um, there will be COVID related expenses. We know that. And we also know that, um, the, there's, uh, there's uncertainty that the city of Medford is facing and that all cities and towns across the Commonwealth are facing. And so as a result of that, we are, um, continuing to explore all possible savings and efficiencies to make sure that we're able to bridge um, whatever gap we responsibly can. Um, we do not have a 5.8 million, and, and frankly, we don't have a $3.4 million savings that is available to us internally. Um, we, we know that, um, and you know, we wanna be honest and transparent about that, but at the same time, um, it's as a, any $62.3 million 
taxpayer-funded enterprise does, we have a responsibility to continue to look internally to make sure that um, we are uh, being good fiscal stewards and recognizing and realizing efficiencies wherever we are um, able to find them. So um, I recognize that's a lot of information. I'm happy to share this information with you after the meeting. This um, this is a, it's a, if these numbers are relatively fluid, but that's the, the wide range between 3.4 and 5.8 um, is intended to um, create space for us to move within that range. So I, I don't anticipate you'll be hearing recommendations that would exceed 5.8. And I don't anticipate any recommendations that um, would would uh, be less than, than 3.4 going into FY22. And again, I'm, I'm happy to, to get into uh, to more details about any or, or all of this information. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Murphy. M Member McLaughlin. Thank you. And I just wanted to add for members of the community, obviously the committee of the whole budget meetings are um, the place where a lot of this nitty gritty um, detail comes out. And I wanted to ask, um, I know with the pandemic last year, it was difficult to get binders around the stuff and I don't know about my colleagues, but for me, I, I work much better with the tactile um, budget binders um, with the ability to move back and forth during the meetings, what have you. So will we be getting those um, this session? I don't have any reason to think you wouldn't be receiving binders if that's the committee's preference. Thank you. That'd be great. Member Rousseau. Thank you. Um, we also passed the motion last June, July, August. It all runs together to get updated binders because, I mean, we do literally, I mean, I, I know most of us probably keep these right at the ready, uh, but this is the binder we use to approve the budget that is absolutely not correct. So, um, you know, you put 62.3 million on that slide. This does not say 62.3 million, neither does the city budget. I go to the city's website. So um, I'm not saying 62.3 is not correct because I know that that is money that came in out of the normal process, but the documents that the public will look at 20 years from now, I've looked at 20 years of our city budgets. They can't be lies, they can't be fictions. We need a budget document that actually reflects what the budget was or a very rational person looking at the actual documents we approved, we'll say in perpetuity that our budget last year was 61.3. Um, and I don't want us to be in that position. I need to know what the budget was. And I feel like I still don't even know because there's this other number that we never approved. And I think we're the only ones who statutorily are allowed to approve a budget. Well, I, the first thing I'll say, just because the word lies was used, is that uh, I really can't say strongly enough that there's no intention to provide any lies to the school committee or the community with regard to this budget. The second thing I will say is that this school district's budget, like all school district's budget, is comprised of multiple funding sources. The 62.3 is, as was discussed in these slides and previous ones, the operating budget comprised of the Chapter 70 allocation and the local uh, contribution from the municipal government. There are external funds, as there are every year, Title I, Perkins grants, uh, 242 grants and special ed, you know, a variety of other sources that come in that in this district amount to in the, in the range of $2 million or so. That also does not include the 4.3 or 
that was represented here with regard to the, the COVID relief funding. And so everyone will, will have a binder and it will spell out in as much detail as possible. I, I don't, I wasn't here, so I can't speak to where those inaccuracies, what they might be attributable to. I will say that my team and I have spent a significant amount of time and I imagine we'll be spending a, a considerable amount of more time in the coming weeks and months um, attempting to align the budget lines with the appropriate uh, uh, budget categories. And there are uh, for a budget of $63 million and eight or 900 employees, it does seem to be that historically there have been a number of um, budget charges, meaning people's salary being charged to the wrong lines, which I think creates confusion and a lack of transparency. I have no, um, I've seen no evidence of any intent on anyone's part. I think there are probably, um, so usually the way that happens is that there's a year where there's an account that's short. And so someone's salary is charged to a different account, sometimes off the operating budget into revolving funds. And then it, the next year somebody else's is, and then it just sort of compounds itself and nobody goes through and actually cleans it up. Um, we've spent a good amount of time this year attempting to clean that up. And so when you look at the binder that's being discussed and it has the columns for FY21 versus FY20 versus FY22, you'll see some uh, variability that doesn't necessarily represent any type of strategic decision on the part of the district as much as it represents an attempt to put people in the appropriate groupings so that it can be clearer to the public, both uh, contemporaneously and historically, uh, where that person, those per the personnel was sitting, what they were doing, and and I think it's just it's a necessary um, correction that has to be made for purposes of purposes of transparency. But I, I the committee should know there is a significant amount of that, and I can't frankly say with certainty that we're going to catch every single one. Um, I can tell you that we've caught a number of them, and I, I think it will be more accurate, and I think it will be more transparent, but. It's $63 million, and I can't say, I can't make a guarantee that there won't be times where you'll find something that should be charged to, to a different account. But in terms of the total number, it's 62.3 plus the external funds, and I have no basis to, um, to think otherwise, at least at, at this point. There isn't, I got, what I want to be clear is, again, I know there, there are members of the community for whom you know, this might be the one discussion about the budget they hear. I don't want people walking away thinking that you as members of the committee have a binder with of $62.3 million, but there's actually 72 and we just don't tell anybody how we spend that, that other 10. It's that there are, there are other funding sources that are all um, discussed publicly that are, that, you know, are, are deliberated on. And, and uh, I think we're transparent about, it's just that it's, it's not all as neat and tidy as just the 60.2.3 and nothing else. Mayor? Member Van de Kloot. Yes, thank you. Uh, just this is kind of a housekeeping comment. Um, I, uh, because of the change in the budget meetings, the curriculum subcommittee meeting is going to be this Wednesday from 4 to 5.30. We're going to be discussing the science curriculum. 
uh, as well as the fine arts curriculum. Additionally, and I particularly want to uh, uh, highlight this to my uh, co-members, Jenny and Mia uh, on the curriculum subcommittee, um, we'd like to set up another one for May 4th, Tuesday, May 4th, uh, also from 4 to 5.30 to discuss health and PE. And that would take away the May 13th meeting uh, and give us the opportunity to hear from those departments uh, prior to the instructional uh, portion of the budget. So uh, after the meeting, if Jenny and Mia would let me know whether that Tuesday, May 4th uh, date is acceptable and whether they can attend, I'd be most appreciative. Thank you. Thank you. Member Graham? What is the city's allocation to the school district this year? I, I don't have that information. I've had ongoing discussions with the city CFO and as we've reported to the committee previously, we have um, meet routinely the two, the two finance teams. And so I have shared this information with the city's finance team with regard to the essentially the three brackets and what we're projecting as a range um, for a, a likely increase or a necessary increase. Um, but I don't have an official number at, at, at to, to the best of my knowledge, I don't have an official number. Um, and I don't, I mean, my, to go back to the, the sequence that we discussed the previous presentation, the committee will vote on a request that will go to the city, excuse me, the superintendent will make a recommendation to the committee, which will then make a request to the city at which point an appropriation will be made. So we've changed the process because it used to be that the city provided the number and we worked to it. So what I'm talking about is the formal process that is the sort of um, reflected by the Massachusetts law with regard to the, the sequence. If the city informally provides a number beforehand, then they're certainly welcome to do that. Okay, I'm glad to hear we're following the law as it's been laid out. Um, the other comment that I will make for my colleagues is that when I think about the budget and how we move forward, um, we need to be thinking about the funds that we did not receive last year um, and then a modest increase on top of that, which does put us into the neighborhood of A plus B plus C on Mr. Murphy's slide. So um, as far as I can tell that really represents restoring the district um, from the layoffs, the pink slips, and all the other things that we had to do last year, um, given the funding issues. And I will um, be looking to make sure that we are funding the things that we promised last year, like middle school health and reading specialists and addressing dyslexia um, in the budget. So I'm hopeful, and we've had great conversations on the curriculum subcommittee. Um, so I am hopeful that the city um, is preparing for that, especially with the significant infusion of cash from the federal government coming our way. Um, so I, that is what I will be looking for as we go into the budget meetings. And um, I hope that we don't have to pink slip hundreds of teachers again this year. Oh, and the last thing I'll say is I'm also hopeful that we can um, do right by the staff 
across lots of bargaining units that have helped us navigate through this pandemic as we talk about um, the negotiation of many collective bargaining agreements and central to those discussions, of course, and reasonably are cost of living increases. And we as a city need to be prepared to um, come to those conversations in good faith. That's all. Just um, Mayor, if I could just in response to Ms. Graham's questions, I think it would be worth bringing up the um, slide with the three buckets again. I think it, it sort of dovetails nicely up those comments. Would that be okay if I shared that very briefly? Yes, please. Thanks. So um, to Ms. Graham's point, if you look in these three categories, on the far left, um, bracket A, we'll call it, it's a good label, I should have put it on there um, to make it more easy to read, I think. Um, that's the 2.1 million increase. That is the increase that is coming regardless of any decisions that we make. Essentially, the decisions that led to that 2.1 increase have already been made in the past. Either they're collective bargaining agreements that have been entered into, some of which decades ago, um, and others are, are uh, strategic decisions with regard to investment in various types of maintenance, be it anything ranging from HVAC to technology. These next two um, brackets, B and C, there are some strategic decisions that, that can be can be made there. And that's why there's a range, 500 to 1.75 and 750 to 2 million. But the committee and the community need to understand that if we go in the low range of that, then there, there's, there are implications to that. So, and you know, you, you could be looking at essentially going multiple fiscal, fiscal years with no cost of living increase. Typically not considered a, a prudent strategy, but under, you know, there, these, are, these are uncertain economic conditions. And so we need to go in understanding that you know, ultimately the, the allocation and the, the product of the collective bargaining negotiations could land somewhere um, within that. With regard to the middle column, uh, bracket B here, that restoration of the FTEs uh, is uh, connected to exactly what Ms. Graham is saying and making sure that those positions are restored appropriately. Um, and that is obviously a chief priority going into these um, discussions and trying to make sure that we're, we're able to um, be made whole as, as much as possible. So um, that those are the three categories. Again, there is a range, there is a variability. That's not unusual, frankly, at this time of the year under this uh, form of government. And it's the uncertainty is exacerbated a little bit this year um, or magnified, I guess, um, by the fact that you know we have the, this potential influx of funding, both the city and the school uh, on, the, on the school and city sides of the ledger for which we don't yet have um, full guidance on with regard to restrictions. And so that leaves us in some cases with more questions. Um, and I know that frankly, sometimes with these budget discussions, I think everyone's a little more comfortable if we either come in and say the sky is falling and everyone has to panic, or we come in and say, this is a really good year, conditions are favorable, we're gonna be able to um, fund all these priorities that have been waiting, we've been waiting for years on. And we're not in either of those situations, frankly. We're not, this is not a time to panic and it's not a time to rejoice. We're, we're somewhere in the middle with some um, legitimate questions that we still need to have answered. Um, but hopefully with this information tonight, people can start to get a sense as to what the range is that we're talking about. If our increase is below $3 million, that, that is going to be a significant, significant challenge. 
if our increase is above $6 million, we're going to have to do some additional strategic planning, frankly, to make sure that we're making the most of the investment. Somewhere within that range in 3.4 to 5.8 um, is a number in which we will be able to make good on the investment, um, maximize those resources to uh, benefit students, um, and also uh, be um, sound fiscal stewards. So thank you um, for allowing me to just go back to that briefly, but I felt like uh, it was a good opportunity to sort of reaffirm that point. Thank you, Mr. Murphy. Number four, we have report on summer fund. Sorry, excuse me, I have my hand raised. Oh, Member McLaughlin. Thank you. Um, thank you uh, for the um, PowerPoint. I was gonna ask if it could be, uh, I didn't see it in the drive, so I'd love to have it sent to the members if you would as well. And then I know that we've had discussion in the past and I just wanted to double check because of the conversation around the process again. And I, we talked about a, a, a flow chart and especially for the community that is trying to understand the process, I think, you know, we're, we have meetings ourselves and we have a lot of conversation that we under, may understand things more than say the lay person does. So I really do think we need this visual. And I don't know if that's in the presentation or where that is, but we need a visual of a flow chart on what the process is and how it works. So I know to member Graham's conversation earlier around, you know, when's the appropriation, what's the appropriation, how does this work? Um, from the city, what have you. I think the flowchart really helps with that. So I'm wondering what the status is, if I can. Will people be getting that? I know there was some discussion we'd be getting it before the budget meetings, which are May 3rd, but that means the public didn't necessarily get it in tonight's meeting. So I, that's, the, that's the point is I really want to make sure that the public understands the process, please. So beyond the flowchart that's in this presentation, you mean? Can we go back to the slide of the flowchart that's in the presentation? I'm happy to. Please. Is there a piece of information not in this flowchart that you would like represented in, in the flowchart? Yeah, I think the process of how the decisions are made. So in the flowchart that we had worked on together, I was under the impression that the, you know, the process around when the city appropriation, how it goes, what is, what is happens if the school committee votes yes, what happens if the school committee votes no, whose decision it is, where that goes, because we don't have any information on that. And, you know, we had this situation last time where it was a very, where there was a closed vote on, there was a potential no vote on the budget and the community, you know, wanted to know what the impact of that would be. And it was not clear and it wasn't clear to committee members and it's yeah. still not clear to me. So I would like to know. Yeah, the, so, yeah and the, I think it's a fair question. It's, it's one that at least in the abstract has been um, discussed. Uh, I've certainly been part of the conversations a few different times and uh, including in, in recent months is um, some of the you know budgets picture um, a couple of months ago when it was even less clear than it is now. Um, but under the, uh, the city form of government, if the, the, the school committee's role, while there is a vote in the statutory required, statutory required vote to adopt the budget um, that is ultimately appropriated by the municipal government, if the question is what happens if the school committee refuses to vote to adopt the budget that the municipal government appropriated, then 
there, there really isn't a, a specific sort of how-to with regard to that. There, the administration would be in a position where the governing body that we report to has not approved spending for fiscal year 22. We would then consult with the Department of Revenue and get guidance as to how we sh should proceed. But I, I think you can expect what you would typically see um, in a situation in which there's a, you know, a, you know, a functionally speaking, a, a government shutdown. It's, it's not common at all in, again, in the, in the municipal um, structure like we have in the, in the city of Medford because um, th there, there isn't really a good off-ramp at, at that point. So the committee's role is in making the initial request to the municipal government, um, articulating, and really it's the administration's responsibility to make sure that we're articulating a defense to that uh, request. And then the municipal government ultimately makes, is, is, the, is the spending branch of the municipal government. And ultimately that's the appropriation that's going to be made. I think the reason that there isn't clearer guidance spelled out to that is because if the school committee were to refuse to accept the budget that was allocated from the municipal government, there wouldn't be sort of a plan B for the school department. The municipal government ultimately would, um, you know, could decide, you know, how it was going to respond to that. And I guess there could be some type of brinksmanship where the municipal government then decided to appropriate more, but just frankly, the way the municipal governments operate and the timing that's involved here in terms of the start of the fiscal year, that's that wouldn't be a strategically prudent route to take, which is why committees typically don't don't take that route. But um, so I, again, that's a, I, I think trying to articulate that and sharing that type of doomsday scenario, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure I would say that it, it would, help inform the community. I think in large part, it would be articulating an option, creating the perception that it's a viable one when in fact it's it's really not a viable option and one that um, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to incorporate more information into this type of presentation that I think is just gonna confuse people. But the committee is certainly, um, so I am not, I'm not trying to substitute my judgment for the committee. The committee would like to articulate the step-by-step step what would happen if the committee voted to not allow the administration to spend the money that was appropriated. You're certainly entitled to do that. I think my recommendation at the time would be to adopt the budget that was appropriated and continue to advocate for a supplemental appropriation to help bridge whatever gaps the committee recognized. I think that would be a significantly more prudent strategy than um, shutting the school department down on July 1st. Member Rousseau. Thank you. Um, feeling a bit of deja vu here. <laughs> um, I, I, I've literally watched videos in this last year of communities that have school committees that send budgets up far greater than their municipal appropriation and the world doesn't come to an end. Um, can you explain to me um, why that isn't actually an option for us? I think it's an op it, I think it's a very reasonable option with regard to your vote to, to make that request. I'm talking about a scenario in which the budget has passed through the municipal government and where we get to the point at which the new fiscal year is going to start. And what I'm saying is but, rather than refusing to adopt that budget, 
and therefore freezing the administration's ability to expend any of the resources that have been appropriated, I think it would be a more prudent strategy to adopt that budget and then continue to advocate and lobby the branch of the municipal government that does have spending authority to supplement that budget. I, I, I'm sorry, I wasn't clear. So if the mayor through her office gives you a number, the school committee's authority around the budget is to vote yes or no on that number. That is our entire, we have all these meetings, we have all this process. At the end of the day, we're voting yes or no on the number that the mayor gave us. And that is the entirety of what we do. I'm saying in other communities, we develop a budget based on the school committee's priorities and obviously with the administration. And they sent, we send up an $85 million budget and the mayor says in her budget, it's 65 million and sends it to the city council and they approve it for $65 million. And we can go to sleep with a good conscience because we talk about priorities, with getting to the priorities that have been on our lists. We talk about that like it's like new uniforms for the band. No, we're talking about reading services for kids in high school that are not on IEPs that can't read well enough in, to get through life. We have zero reading service providers for kids that are not on IEPs that do not read properly, sufficiently. That's not a priority. Those are kids who are going out into the world without basic skills. And, you know, I mean, there's the middle school sex ed that we don't have. There's the, we don't have any physical ed for, we don't have an adaptive physical ed person. Um, you know, we keep talking about priorities, like we're talking about whether to get a new car this year or wait a year, like it's our personal budget. There are actual children on the other end who are going off out of our schools, not prepared to survive. And so I would be able to go to bed if we sent an $85 million budget up, it, just picking a number randomly, that reflected what we said we needed. And then it's on the mayor, and then it's on the city council, and it's on the taxpayers who will then not be able to deny that this is what we need. But every year we send up a budget that is the exact to the nickel number we're given from the city hall. And it doesn't matter what we need. It doesn't matter. And that's the truth. Um, so I just, you know, this notion that we are in a, we're in a machine and we have no other options is just not true. And other communities have figured it out. They send a budget up that is, is ethical and reflects the needs of the kids. And if the community isn't willing to pay for it, then it's on the community. But if we won't send that budget up, it's on us. It's not on the community. It's on us. Mr. So, I'm I just tired of this talk about priorities. Like it's like whether or not to paint your house this year or next, yep. or this year or not. So I, Mayor, if I could just respond briefly. I just want to be clear in this presentation, I've, we've used the word necessity, not priority. So. I, I think that I understand what you're saying. That I, I would say I would rather use the term strategic priority than wish list. And that is something that we've talked to within our internal budget meetings. We've, we've made that expectation clear because I think a wish list, frankly, um, doesn't sound credible. And I think that um, you're not in a position to be able to advocate on behalf of the school department if we are asking everyone who works for us to say, just tell us what you dream about at night. But I don't think that's I don't think that's helps the cause in any way. But I, I hope, Mr. So, you're not taking this presentation to suggest that we as an administration believe you don't have any options. I, 
the presentation tonight says there's a range from 3.4 to 5.8 that we can make very good, very prudent, very student-centered investments in. Now, as you hear from department heads over the course of the next several weeks, you may well say 5.8 seems you know, important, but we really think it's 6.3. I can't, frankly, I don't know why you wouldn't make that request if that's what you think is necessary. Because to your point, the sky's not gonna fall in if the committee says, look, we've summed all this up. We think the vote should be at six point, should be 6.3. It's ultimately, it is the school committee's request to make. You should make it as you see fit. I, I, want, I would say I, I, I have a responsibility to tell you that if we get much further past the, the range that we're talking about here, again, there's a lot of planning that would have to go in. And so I would, I would be mindful of that for purposes of making sure that we as an organization have the credibility to advocate on behalf of students. I think that that's sort of how this works when you have multi you know, levers of government involved in the development of, of a budget. But I think by all means, you can make that request. I don't know why. I don't know why you wouldn't. As you know, if if understand that we're going to be able to operate if if we end up with less than that. And I'm what we as an administration can't do is, and I don't think anyone is asking us to do. To be clear, but we can't say we can't light our hair on fire if you know the if the if the request comes in below six million dollars because we are going to be able to operate. We're going to be able to do right by students. If we get lower than that low end of the number, no, I don't think we can. And I, I have a responsibility to, to tell you from based on what I've seen so far, including a lot of these fixes that we're making and trying to be more transparent and be more honest and taking into account that those uncertainties. If we land at a number that is our current budget less, um, you know, with less than a, a, a $3.4 million increase at this time, I would not be comfortable with that. We would have to make uh, a series of, of decisions that I don't think would be in the best interest of students. But I also say, I don't think there's a magic number that somehow if we cross that threshold, all of a sudden, you know, every, we're going to do right by every single kid. I, I don't think that number exists. I think right now it's a range. I think there are a lot of variables that we have to take into account. I think there are questions that we have to get answered. Um, but I, but I, I don't think, I just want to be clear that there's two stages of this process. You can make whatever request you think is appropriate, but I, I, it is hard to imagine a scenario on June 30th where not adopting the budget that's been appropriated is the best course of action. That was my only point. But prior to that, I think you should make whatever request you, you think is in the interest of the district. Thank you, Mayor. May I just have a quick follow-up? Member Roussel. Thank you. Can we get um, an attorney who can answer the questions about this um, onto a meeting? Uh, because I was under the impression from our last round was that if we had voted the budget down and the city appropriated the funds anyways, our voting it down would have no impact at all on people getting paid. So, you know, the notion that we shut the building down on July 1st and you all just go home and wait it out while the politicians get raked over on Facebook or something, I don't think is reality. And um, I think there is certainly a time when it becomes a problem. I need to actually have an, an answer to what happens if we refuse to approve a budget that we don't feel is adequate. And I don't want to find out after we are there 
what the consequences are. I, I think we need an answer. And the, you know, several members last year were like, well, what will happen? And here we are coming up on another year where several of us are asking what will happen. And I can't believe that in Massachusetts with 351 communities, and I know there's very different forms of government, that nobody has ever refused to pass a budget. That just doesn't seem plausible. So just to be clear. It doesn't it, seem it, plausible. It's, there absolutely have been school committees that have refused to adopt a budget, okay? And, I, and I, I'll, we're ha I'm happy to seek outside counsel and provide you with a legal opinion. I will say I am an attorney that's done this. I have talked to other attorneys that have, that have dealt with this. And the issue is that in this form of government, with this timing, it is so nonsensical that there isn't a clear path forward. There are various options, some of which I think are of questionable legality, but there are absolutely paths forward at that point. In some of the other forms of government, there are contingencies that are built in and there are levers that can then be adopted. In this form of government, there aren't as many. So there aren't gonna be, there, are, there will not be a good option available, but that's not to suggest that there will be no options. And I, I really, really wanna be clear that there are two uh, points in the budget sequence here. No one is saying that the school committee must only take a vote on a number that's handed over from the city. I don't know what the point of the school committee would be if that was the only thing that you were uh, empowered to do. But that is, a diff that is a different question than whether the administration who works for the school committee can legally spend money if no vote has been adopted. I will tell you that in a lot of school committees, and this is you know, sort of the ugly truth of school governance, they often forget to take the second vote, okay? That is not uncommon. And I think the, the School Committee Association probably is, is more familiar with this than I am. But once the request is made and the municipal government ultimately makes that appropriation, most school committees just consider their previous vote to have been their approval of the budget. And then administratively, the funding flows in and people get paid and, and off we go throughout the course of the fiscal year and we live happily ever, ever after, okay? There is, a, there is a statute that makes it very clear that there's an expectation that the committee adopt a budget after that appropriation is made. And I think it would be a best practice to follow that. And I don't think it would be a best practice to not expend the funding that was appropriate, especially when you are in no way closed off from continuing to, to advocate. I understand there could be some symbolic value in just saying no, but I don't think there's any legal or strategic value in that. And again, you know, if the if the idea is you have complete control over where the money is spent, because there's an absolute prohibition on the municipal government telling the school committee how to spend within the eligible expenses, you it seems to me that the more prudent strategy would be to adopt the money, especially when there's a two-month runway before most students are even in the buildings, and then continue to advocate for a, a supplemental budget. I mean, that that is a that is the path that is is going to constitute a best practice. Whether we can, through some type of DOR regulation, expend funds technically without facing the sort of unfortunate end of an audit, um, yeah, possibly we, we could do that. But I can, you know, those of us who are administrators reporting to the school committee, no, we don't really want to be spending money if the school committee hasn't ultimately adopted a plan to, to spend that money. And that's one point. Thank you. Thank you, Member Graham. Yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge that um, this two-step process that is a best, both a best practice and like supported by 
law and regulation. Um, I think is something that Medford just hasn't done before, which I think is why you're getting all of these questions, Mr. Murphy, like Medford has not operated in this best practice fashion in the past. And I think it's time that we start doing that. And that means two votes and that provides an outlet and an ability for the school committee to tell the city government what uh, we need to support the students in our charge. And it also um, allows us a way to acknowledge whether we're doing everything we can with the hand that we have been given. Um, last year, those two things were horribly muddy together. And I think my comments at the time were about trying to make sure that my no vote was not construed as a criticism of making the best of a very bad budget situation and um, being supportive of the budget overall, which to me were two very different things. And so I, I am completely supportive of this two-step process. It is a best practice for lots of good reasons. And I am happy to have you on board to guide us through that best practice process so that um, we can do better for the students of Medford than we have been able to do in our past budget discussions. So thank you. I, I appreciate it, Mr. Graham. Just to be clear, you're hardly alone in that. Again, I, whether it's most or not, I, I really can't speak to, but it is absolutely not uncommon for the school committee to take a vote, think of it as a budget approval, when in effect it's a request because the actual appropriating happens on the other side of town. The appropriation is made and then they never convene again. And frankly, just because of sort of the cycle, I, I don't know this, but I suspect a big part of why that second vote doesn't occur in a lot of school committees, it's because the committee has already recessed for the summer when the appropriation is actually allocated. But right. again, it's, it's really, really not uncommon. It's just that I think that what I'm hearing from multiple members is that they, they want a, the budget vote to be a clear articulation as to what the committee sees as the needs of the school, the school district. That's completely fair. Again, that's the, that is the, why school departments are unique within the municipal structure. It's why there's a semi-autonomous body that is elected to have that independence and to advocate on behalf of students, right? But there's also a reality that within the composition of a municipal government, there are competing needs, there are competing priorities, and there's a limit, limited amount of money, even with an allocation like this coming in from the federal government. And so the municipal government has a different mandate and needs to make those decisions and ultimately make an appropriation. My only point is once that need has been articulated and when the right to continue to articulate that need and to advocate continues even after that appropriation is made, I'm hard pressed to think of a scenario in which voting down the appropriation that has come in is going to put us in a more favorable position, both to operate the district and to advocate for the additional investment that the school committee believes is necessary. And so I think that that's sort of the, the sequence as, as it plays out over the course of the next month. To, to Thank month. you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, number four, report on summer fun and community schools, Dr. Peter Cushing, Mr. Robert Malone, Maloney.
Dr. Cushing. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, I apologize. Right now, I'm on a computer that has no audio, um, and my other computer just went down. Um, so if you would just bear with me for one moment, I will uh, read the report and um, hopefully get audio back momentarily. Um, so... Uh, so uh, right now this report is updating on summer fun and the uh, other community schools programs that are being offered this summer. Uh, first, uh, summer fun, Mr. Petrellis is on the call, um, but we are offering summer fun uh, this year. It will start on June, July 5th and it will go through uh, August 13th. Uh, we have six weeks of availability this summer. One of the things that all of the summer programs are competing with are staffing issues, um, as well as issues um, uh, with just the pandemic and looking at how much um, staff have been through over the past year and just a level of exhaustion. So currently uh, we're working to bring people on board make sure that we have the appropriate nursing staff um, and other supports necessary to make sure that all of our programs across the district are running very well and very efficiently. Uh, secondly, we um, are, um, with Summer Fun, um, there will be a cost increase this year to go up to $200 per week. Uh, we cannot accept walk-ins uh, due to the fact that um, we're looking for students to have a COVID, a negative COVID test, which you can get at a Stop the Spread site free of charge um, prior to uh, students enrolling. Um, the, the summer fund program will be moved this year to the Columbus School um, as we're looking to spread out as much as possible from the high school to uh, look at the number of programs that are, uh, just give me one second, I'm actually coming. Um, so one of the things that we're doing by moving to the Columbus, we will have the, um, we'll have the opportunity to use the Tufts pool um, at Tufts Park near, um, so make me sh give me one moment. I apologize. All right. I can't apologize enough for the technical difficulties I had over the last couple of minutes. Um, so hopefully. Um, you actually heard me over the last couple of minutes. So um, by moving it to the Columbus, uh, we've got a large field there. We've got a fully renovated playground available to our students and then the availability to go to the Tufts playground. Uh, we also have uh, several programs that are partner programs that will be leasing space from Medford uh, Public Schools through the community schools slash partnering with community schools. Um, and those include the Spotlight Program. Uh, that's a $325 um, per workshop uh, cost. They give a specialized singing mask to students. Uh, they will be able to uh, 
um, sing, be able to act, be able to do the things that they've been normally doing. There are certain CDC guidelines that we will be following. Um, these have been published by the city of Medford as well. Um, and they were updated late Friday night. Um, so we're going to cohort individuals as much as possible. Attendees must remain three feet apart um, during normal activities, six feet when eating. Uh, we're going to schedule activities outside as much as possible. We'll strongly encourage all of our camp staff uh, who are 16 and older to get vaccinated um, as soon as the opportunity is available, which is now. Um, we'll be ventilating interior spaces as much as possible, and the district's work on HVAC is definitely helping uh, in all those areas. Um, and mask wearing at all times, with the exception of swimming, eating, and drinking. And in the report that I submitted to you this afternoon, um, I do quote from where they do not want students wearing a mask in areas where they will get wet, uh, such as at a beach or a pool, as a wet mask can make it difficult to breathe and to uh, also not work. Um, so these programs are enriching and offer a great opportunity for our students. One of our problems that we have um, is that uh, the GBL um, league made the decision to get as many kids involved in athletics as possible. The problem is, is that that meant that um, we waited for other school districts to get out of the red to really be able to start participating, which is awesome. It was a great league um, mandate but we're gonna be pushing our athletic seasons later than ever before, going to July 3rd, and then fall seasons start back on August 15th. And many of these programs utilize facilities that our athletics program would. Um, so um, just let me run through this again. We also have a Medford basketball summer camp run by our varsity programs. It's available to all students, uh, kindergarten through grade nine, three weeks, June 21st to the 25th, June 12th to the 16th, and August 9th to the 13th. Uh, Spotlight Productions is also running July 5th through the 13th. Um, and then the Boston, the Boston Celtics have um, expressed interest in returning to Medford High School. They were there two years ago to run camps, and we're currently just waiting to make sure that we have all of our scheduling settled before we open to outside vendors. So that's summer fun in community schools at this point. Um, I'll take any questions if you have them. Member McLaughlin. Thank you, Mayor. I'm, I guess I'm confused because I thought, is, is Mr. Maloney here? Mr. Maloney is currently supervising uh, volleyball. Um, and so um, was not able to join. Okay, so do we know what the status is going to be on like the cost of um, um, the summer fun camp this year, what the staffing is going to be, you know, uh, you know, sort of how that's going to, I'm, I'm thrilled that it's happening, you know, um, we're definitely going to be going, I think it's a great program, or my, my child's going to be going, I won't be going, but um, I think it's a great program, but I'd like to. I'm not going to gonna lie, I wish I could go, um, yeah, no. but um, no, uh, Right now, and Mr. Petrellis, uh, I, I know, is flying solo with twins at this point, um, but we are charging $200 per student. Um, the additional cost is related to PPE and other things that all of these programs are now going to be responsible for. Um, we're going to, um, um, the initial conversations were probably capping at 75 campers. 
um, just because of the need to distance and, um, you know, for the additional staff. Um, if we can expand beyond that, we will, but we've just got to be very careful about the number of students that are coming in. Okay, may I, may I follow up question? Or yes, do you want to let, okay. Uh, hands, so you keep going. Thank you. Um, and so um, I know that in the past, we've worked with community schools to ensure that there is a, obviously a clear, you know, statement on all applications that, um, you know, Medford Public Schools does not discriminate based on, you know, ability, blah, 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 so on and so forth, so that the community members know that, you know, if you have a child with a disability who, you know, you want to attend summer fun camp in our school district, they are fully uh, uh, able, permitted, should be allowed to attend summer fun camp um, because it is a community program, community-based program, which is obviously accessible and open to all individuals. So we had something similar. I know Mr. Petrellis is on the line and he was very thoughtful about how that was written into the applications in the past, but just want to make sure that that's really clear to the community because it's an important program where another opportunity to build friendships between children with and without, um, varying abilities. So thank you. Oh. I would definitely say absolutely. And then, um, you know, also any community members who would feel generous enough to say sponsor students, um, always feel free to reach out and um, make a contribution on behalf so that we can be able to offer those um, types of things, which we would do anyway, but it just helps to make sure that we're um, meeting um, in the black, but we would never deny a student. Thank you. How, uh, one last question. And when, it, when are the applications available? Uh, they should be available at the end of this week. We were just clearing up a few things. Uh, we would love to be able to offer credit card payments in the future and a few other things, but just given the timelines for this year, it wasn't a, it wasn't very realistic. Um, and there are certain challenges if you accept credit cards as you know, the refund isn't immediate. It needs to go through the, t the city warrant process um, and things along those lines. So um, what we'd like to do is have the, um, have the applications uh, available toward the end of this week, um, make sure that they're back as quickly as possible. Um, and then, um, yeah, we'd like, we, what we can't have this year though, I can't stress this enough, is we can't have the walk-ups that I think people are very accustomed to. Right. And so may I ask again, Mayor, one more question? Yes, Member McLaughlin. Um, and so uh, uh, are there opportunities for um, camp counselors or what have you? I know in the past, Mr. Petralis has been really great about recruiting, you know, phenomenal um, adults to be uh, counselors within the camp. And I'm wondering where we are at on staffing with that and whether or not there are opportunities available for, you know, our rising seniors, rising juniors, uh, you know, folks who may be looking for a summer job, what have you. Yep. There will definitely be opportunities for them. Um, although, you know, they may be slightly limited just because of the smaller number um, that is, um, that is going to be available. Um, so, but we'll be looking at the staffing in the coming, uh, week to week and a half, um, and hiring as well. And then onboarding anyone who is not currently in the onboarded system. So if individuals are interested in applying for a camp counselor position, what would they do? Uh, we'll be putting out an email to all the students to let them know. 
um, through the district email. Um, and then I'm sure Mr. Petrellis will be reaching out as well to make sure that he's um, trying to connect with those counselors that may actually have gone elsewhere last year um, because some programs ran. And then just the last, last summer, there were really uh, many challenges that prevented us from running summer fun. And so one of the challenges that we face is counselors may have found opportunities in other camps. Yeah, and I just wanted to say thank you to Mr. Petrellis, who has been so steadfast in the summer fund program. And, you know, it's a great example, another shining star in uh, Medford's crown, a shining jewel in Medford's crown of, you know, an example of um, uh, diversity and affordability and um, accessibility. And Anthony has really led the charge on that. And I, I want to say thank you to Mr. Petrellis and Mr. Droschke and others who have been so um, uh, critical in that program. Thank you. Thank you, Member McLaughlin. Thank you, Dr. Cushing. Number five, we have recommendation to approve 2021-2022 school year calendar. Motion to approve. Approved by Member Rousseau, seconded by? Member McLaughlin. Member McLaughlin, roll call. Uh, Member Graham. Yes. Member Kretz. Yes. Member McLaughlin, yes. Member Mustone. Yes. Member Rousseau. Yes. Member Vanderclue. Member Vanderclue, just unmute yourself, please. Yes. Mayor Longo Karn. Yes. Seven the affirmative, zero in the negative. New calendar for 2021 2022 has been approved. And that will be okay. up on our website, um, I would assume, in the next couple days. Member Russo. Thank you. I just wanted to thank the administration for their work on an entirely new calendar this year and the way it's being done. And I'm quite proud of the work that went into that new calendar. So I'm very excited. And I love that the calendar itself includes the statement of how much we value our community. So I just wanted to thank everybody that did the work on that. Thank you. Yes. Great job. I'd like to thank Susie for uh, all the extra time she put in to really beautify the calendar as well to make it more user-friendly. Thank you, Susie. Mm -hmm. Number six, we have update on discounted MBTA bus passes for disadvantaged students. Mr. David Murphy. Thank you, Mayor. This was a request from uh, the committee that we uh, share an update on this. And um, I know this was discussed at a previous meeting. So if the beginning part of this is, um, is repetitive or redundant, I apologize. Um, I, I think the committee knows that uh, we, like many districts, uh, offer a discounted MBTA pass uh, at a cost of $30. This year, we've been um, seeing about 50 of those passes per month. That's, um, I know, a reduction than normal, as, as would be expected, given the reduced uh, occupancy of the building and just general, generally fewer people taking public transportation. But um, we, we were asked to, to look into the potential for expanding this to potentially um, offer the, offer more passes. The idea being that we wanna make sure that we're giving as much access as, as possible um, to students and not depriving anyone of the benefits that come with the MBTA pass. Um, and so uh, we've had some preliminary discussions internally um, with the uh, building leadership and um, we have reached out to the MBTA in the hope of beginning a conversation about the possibility of um, getting 
of further discounting um, if we were to buy um, the passes in bulk. Um, I will just say I'm not optimistic necessarily about those conversations based on um, some previous experience I've seen in other districts that were buying um, thousands more passes than uh, we would we would likely uh, purchase. But we at least want to have that conversation and, and uh, potentially we've, we've considered um, reaching out to other districts as well to see if there might be some other uh, strategy for um, procuring uh, additional passes. And um, right now, what we know is just sort of in the basic numbers, if we were to um, draw the line at ec our economically disadvantaged uh, population of students, we'd be looking at a potentially $150,000 um, uh, budgetary impact that would need to be absorbed. If we were to expand that as, as um, some districts have to all high school students, um, we'd be looking at uh, what we estimate to be a $350,000 charge. Um, there are other strategies that are probably worth exploring, particularly if, the, if it was the committee's uh, uh, priority to, to consider doing the $350,000 charge. Typically, that is a program that would be tied to a city as the classroom type program in which you're trying to encourage the use of the MBTA pass to, um, to explore more experiential learning opportunities. And so if that were to be part of a, a larger suite uh, of, of offerings or, or initiatives, um, we probably also want to take a close look at our current transportation contract with our primary vendor to see if um, it may be cost efficient to expand um, the yellow bus usage at, at the high school. My understanding is certainly right now and historically, um, the high school has been serviced by one um, yellow bus from the, for the, from the primary vendor. Um, and so that, that is what is contemplated by the current contract when the first of, of three years within that contract, but that might be something that we we want to take a look at depending on the level of investment the committee would like us um, to consider. And so um, that's sort of where we are in terms of the internal discussions we've had as to whether um, we, sh we should consider this. You, you may have seen the last bullet there that we've also talked about the possibility of essentially creating an application process. Um, there are inherent issues with that, as you can imagine, making sure that we're being fair and equitable with regard to how those applications would be reviewed and potentially um, how the, the either further discounted or free passes would be allocated. But we're certainly open to that. And if the committee has other questions or direction that you'd like us to take, um, you know, we, we can ex certainly explore this uh, further. But um, primarily, we just wanted to provide this this update to to see if there were any other questions or direction that the committee would like to provide. Thank you, Mr. Murphy. Member Graham, then Member McLaughlin. Um, thanks for this update. I, I think um, what I would like to see as we talk about the budget for the transportation is what are those options and how would they fit into our budget um, when the budget is the transportation budget is um, presented to us, because um, you know it may be that uh, the MBTA buses are not the most cost-effective way for us to um, provide free transportation to all students. Um, my understanding is the MBTA buses are also the reason that sort of hinder us in a regular year from doing late starts and all kinds of other things. Um, so as we kind of consider um, start times, late starts, snow days, <laughs> all of those things, um, I think it's a conversation worth having, but I would want to have it in the context of 
the larger budget so that we can understand like what those options are. Like, I mean, this option sounds fine, but there may be a better cost-effective option we should pursue. And I, I want to make sure that we look at all of those. Thank you. Member McLaughlin, then Member Rousseau. Yes, thank you, Mr. Murphy, for putting this together. I appreciate the time you've taken to meet with me on this as well. Um, I, I, I would love to know, I guess one thing was, I, I understand that in the past, um, teachers have been funding some of these passes. Is that right? Uh, I know that there are there have been some situations in which teachers have um, put together some essentially private efforts to to fundraise and make sure that um, some students are are provided with those. And certainly, that's um, something that's a, it's a test testimony to or te it attests to their um, extent to which they care about their students in a, in a very comprehensive fashion. Um, I think everyone also understands that it's it's that's not a um, prudent long-term strategy for providing transportation. It's that it's not a responsibility that we should ever could expect of teachers. And, you know, that, that extra effort and extra funding could be going toward other needs that, that students have. And I'm sure that that is, I know that frankly, that's what some of those teachers would prefer. Um, it is a significant potential financial commitment on the part of the district. So it's also not something that we could do um, I think without looking at, as Ms. Graham points out, the broader budgetary context and make sure that we consider all of the potential options and sort of what is the specific objective um, that we would be looking to achieve with that. But yes, I mean, certainly there have been teachers that have done that. I think believe there have been some other uh, outside organizations that have done that. And um, we don't want this to be, a, we don't want any student's ability to bring in $300 in the course of a school year to preclude them either from being able to get to school easily or move around the community and, and again, experience some of those uh, experiential learning opportunities. So that, that's why we have to take a look at this. But um, I think if the, if the underlying point of the question is like, that's not a good long-term plan. I, I think we certainly agree with that. Thank and you. The teachers would as well. So Mayor, may I get in the queue again after Member Russo for a follow-up or however you want to do that? Did we lose the mayor again? I think we did. Member Vanderkloot. Yes, um, let's see, Member Rousseau, and then I'd like to get, we do have a hand raised by Leticia Roca. So Member Rousseau. Thank you. Um, I, um, you know, when I, when, I when I talked earlier about like the budget we actually need, this is a prime example of, um, of something that without any question should just be in the budget, um, you know, the, the word free is literally, I think, in almost all legislation around a public education. Um, and it's also a joke. It's actually a joke. It costs literally hundreds or even thousands of dollars a year to send your kid to free public school every year per child. Um, and so, um, you know, and, and I think of that as a failure of society, frankly, um, but also perhaps a failure of us to just imagine that schools should actually be free. That seems so obvious um, that it's awful to have to say it. But um, so, uh, you know, when we talk about the budget and we talk about uh, building a budget that's bigger than our allocation, uh, I don't know why this wouldn't have just been on the list. Of course, we're going to provide kids a way to get to school. Um, if, 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 if some kids just didn't show up to school because of this, in a course of a year, if just 10 or 20 kids didn't, 
how much money would the public have spent on courts and and you know officers to go to their houses and like all of that stuff will add up um, to more than three hundred fifty thousand dollars pretty easily. Um, so uh, I certainly think Member Graham's point about like looking at this in the context of the actual transportation budget and is there an opportunity to make this number smaller? I, I mean, I am not looking to spend all the money that we can possibly spend. That's not my goal. But um, but getting kids to school um, should be part of a free public education. So um, I really appreciate that you did the numbers on this um, because they're, they're actually even bigger than the numbers I had come up with on my own. <laughs> and um, But um, I, I, I think we need to solve this and hopefully soon. And it seems like a good time to do it um, because uh, you know we, we can build a budget these next three years that show the public, the, the residents of Medford, the taxpayers, this is what your public school system can provide if we have the resources. And it's a heck of a good way to also market it at the time to say, look, if we can't get more revenue from wherever, this is the list of things we're taking away from your kids. I mean, that's, that, you know, we talk about what we're not going to give them, but we don't talk about it. But if we are giving it to them, so that they can actually get to school and they don't have to don't have to have six figure incomes in their houses to be able to do the things that we think of as part of school. Um, it's it's a really a it's a lot harder pill to swallow to tell people we're going to take this away from hundreds or thousands of kids. And I think that that's a motivation we should put on the taxpayers. So thank you. Right. Member yes, may um, I like call on Letitia, Letitia Roca, please? Letitia, are you there? Can you mute, unmute yourself? Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So I see that Mr. Murphy has discussed the discounted MBTA passes um, for disadvantaged high school students, um, which he's not even optimistic about. Um, and I'm here to state that this measure is simply not enough. Um, it's honestly shameful that the administration thinks that this is even close to providing relief to families who struggle to get their children to school on a daily basis. Maybe this issue has been shoved to the back burner during the pandemic, but since the expectation is that school will be functioning as normally as possible in the next school year, the matter of equitable, and I mean equitable transportation for high schoolers needs to be addressed now. All high school students should have access to yellow buses, not only those that live in the predominantly white and wealthy neighborhood of North Medford. Medford's history has made it so this city is incredibly segregated. And I'm fully aware that North Medford is provided with yellow buses because there technically aren't any MBTA stops in this area. But this is really just an excuse the school administration uses over and over not to address the issue. You continue to provide resources to an area where most residents have the systemic supports advantages and privileges to get to school without an issue. The MBTA is not a reliable or safe mode of transportation for our high schoolers. There are many students in South Medford, which is a much more racially and economically diverse population than North Medford, who struggle to get to school on time because the MBTA is completely unreliable. When students come in late repeatedly, what happens to them? Well, they have because they have no other options than to use the MBTA, they're given detentions over and over, 
which leads to eventual suspension. And we all know that these kinds of disciplinary actions directly impact students' chances to pursue a college education. So since this district likes to claim that they value equity so much that we are one Medford, right? Then they must find a way to provide yellow school buses to all high school students that need it, particularly those that live over two miles from the school. You can't claim to value equity without providing all students with the opportunity to get to school with a reliable and safe form of transport, which is shown time and again to be yellow school buses. We need action and not performative gestures. Thank you. Thank you. I see the mayor is back, so I'll hand the reins back to the mayor. You need to unmute yourself. I know. I just need to catch my bearings. Where, where are we? I apologize. My we were discussing the transportation uh, for high school students. And I'm in the queue, Mayor. Member McLaughlin, I think. Did we yes, Melanie would be next. Member McLaughlin. Thank you, Mayor. Um, yeah, I was going to say for regard uh, regarding the budget meeting. Thank you um, for folks that mentioned that. And again, Mr. Murphy, thank you for this report. I think that the information we need is really important for the budget um, transportation budget meeting, so that we have it. And so I would ask that it be disaggregated, so that we have both. The I know that you you know gave us the numbers, but I'd love to know how many economically disadvantaged you know um, at the high school. To, to, you know, if we, if we do that initially, um, or if we do all, so those numbers specifically would be really helpful. And then I would also like to know which students, if possible, which students are actually outside of a two mile radius, if there are any, because the, I know that the law requires us to provide transportation to students outside of a two mile radius, if I'm not mistaken, I was under the impression that that was required. So I want to, I was also told when I asked this question in the past, that we didn't have students that were beyond a two mile radius or that the, for those that we did, transportation was being provided. So I would just love that issue addressed through the budget meeting. And, and if I'm wrong around the legal requirements that that be addressed as well. And clearly we all know from McKinney-Vento students, which are our homeless students, um, we are required to provide transportation for those students. So um, um, I know that you put them on there, but you know, that is clearly also a legal requirement. So I guess my question is uh, for the budget hearing on the transportation where we will have this topic, can we please have the disaggregated data on these numbers um, to include uh, any students, any student population beyond a two mile radius? So the three disaggregated pieces would be uh, economically disadvantaged at the high school, total at the high school, and any students outside of a two mile radius. If that would be acceptable, I would appreciate it. No problem. Thank you, Mr. Murphy. Sounds great. Thank you, Mr. Murphy. Number eight, we have old, any old business? I don't believe so. Number nine, communications. Number 10, new business. We have number one, resolution. Mayor? Yes. Member um, number one was on our agenda and approved last week. So um, I think it was just left there in error. We can move on to number two. Best news I've heard all night. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Skipping page three then. Um, we're on to number two, whereas the current school committee policy, GCA professional staff position states, all professional staff positions in the school system will be created initially by the school committee. 
It is a committee's intent to activate a su sufficient number of positions to accomplish the school system's goals and objectives and to provide for the equitable staffing of each school building. Although such positions may remain temporarily unfilled, only the school committee may abolish a position it has created. Each time a new position is established by the committee, the superintendent will present for the committee's approval a job description for the position, which specifies the job holder's qualifications and the job's performance responsibilities. The superintendent will maintain a comprehensive set of job descriptions for all positions. Note job descriptions for professional staff positions that are available for review in the office of the superintendent. Be it resolved that the school committee amends policy GCA professional staff positions to ensure transparency, rele relevancy, and accountability across all professional staff functions. All professional staff positions in the school system will be created initially by the school committee. It is the committee's intent to activate a sufficient number of positions to accomplish the school system's goals and objectives and to provide for the equitable staffing of each school building. Professional staff is defined as the department head, central office staff, nursing, or nursing. Superintendent will maintain a comprehensive list of positions and a set of job descriptions for all positions. All job descriptions will be reviewed every three years and presented to the school committee for approval. Job descriptions will contain a last review date. Superintendent will establish a review cycle for all positions descriptions within 60 days of the adoption of this policy. The initial review cycle will last for no longer than three years and conclude by September 1st, 2024. Effective September 1st, 2021, the comprehensive list and current job descriptions for professional staff positions are available for review by the public on the Metro Public Schools website. Each time a new position is established by the committee, the superintendent will present for the committee's approval a job description for the position, which specifies the job holder's qualification and the qualifications and the job's performance responsibilities. Although such positions may remain temporarily unfilled, only the committee may abolish a position it has created. All positions unfilled for the entire school year will be reported to the committee annually, no later than June 1st with an explanation for the vacancy. All positions that remain unfilled for more than two consecutive years will be presented to the committee to be abolished no later than June 1st. In the event the superintendent wishes to maintain any positions that have been unfilled for more than two consecutive school years, the superintendent must explain the rationale and plan to fill the position and get approval from the committee to continue the unfilled position for an additional year. Offered by Member Graham and Member Rousseau. I will turn it over to you. Thanks. So I actually was um, asked by a member of the community about uh, which person in the district did a certain thing. And it got me um, sort of wondering about our official job descriptions, which I wasn't able to put my hands on. Um, but I did go and look for our policy because I knew that we had one. Um, and it struck me that it was very outdated um, and doesn't reflect um, what I would consider to be best practice around roles and responsibilities, um, making sure that we are evolving positions um, as education changes and shifts um, as is just typical in, in any job. And I wanted to um, put this forward as a recommendation to this policy um, because it was on my mind at that time. And I think just overall um, focusing on best practice and hygiene will really benefit um, the students ultimately, but all of us in the clarity of who is responsible for what, 
um, which allows the administration to hold staff accountable um, to their roles and um, provides uh, clarity and transparency for the community. Thank you. Anything to add, Member Rousseau? And then Member Um I, I had some, some questions about, first of all, there's a timeline, September 1st, uh, for comprehensive list and current job description. And I just wanted to understand whether that was um, realistic given all the demands of going in right now. So I was just curious about that uh, from central administration, what their reaction to that is. Uh, I'm a little concerned. I, I find this um, in many ways pretty confusing um, and um and very prescriptive. Um, I'm sort of wondering if there's a way we can simplify it um, to make it more accessible. Um, if I may from the chair, I, I yeah. don't disagree with you about it being a bit confusing, although I agree with the premise of making sure- I, Yeah, I agree with the premise of that. Updated. Um, but it, I also agree that we should probably ask the administration a reasonable time frame because we're doing this on the city side, trying to update all job descriptions, and it, it does take some time. Um, Mayor, Member Graham, then Mr. Murphy. So the only thing by September first was a list. That's it. Um, that was really, and that they be posted to the MPS website. Um, I recognize that. Um, a, you don't want to be revising everybody's job all at the same time because it becomes an, a, an implementation problem. Um, if you are in a position of having to make changes at any given time to some number of positions, so you want to, you don't want to big bang the <laughs> changes or the review of every job description in the house at the same time, um, which is why um, I provided for like a three-year like roll-in of the first iteration of this with. It, it, at least in my head, I, I would do that so that on an annual basis, there's some number of job descriptions that the committee is revising or saying is okay without it ever being like a process where we're looking at every single one at the same time. So to me, providing a list of the job descriptions that the community pays for um, as part of the school district should not be... Um, prohibitive, um, which I think is the only ask by September of this year. First. And then really providing a three-year um, ramp in to a good cadence of hygiene around how we um, hold our senior staff accountable makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think at that point, you, you have the ability to, to do it in manageable chunks and to execute on change um, and you never get into a position where job descriptions are widely outdated staff. Um, and I'm not saying this happens here, but it happens all over the, t all over the place say that's not in my job description and I'm not going to do it. Um, and what have you. So making sure that we have good structures in place in terms of policy from this committee so that the administration has our support as those changes are made. And there's an expectation that it be done frequently, I think is to me, pretty important. Um, Member Vandekloot, then I... Uh, well, let me see. Um, let yeah, Kathy I, I, yeah, I was going to say, Kathy's had her hand raised. 
Oh, okay. I didn't. It's my yep. fault. I'm sorry. Yeah, no problem. Um, yes, I, I had the same concerns about the date where, you know, going back to school, uh, the first day of school starts, I believe I just saw on the calendar. Um, I think it was like August 30th or it could be August 31st. So, you know, I'm thinking that we're just getting the kids ready to get back in school. It's teacher induction week. And it just seems the timing, the date, September 1st seems, you know, a little bit too close to the start of school. So I also wanted to ask the superintendent or the administration if they felt that date was doable, you know, even just to get the comprehensive list, which will still maybe take some time where they're working throughout the summer, getting everything ready for back to school and getting the kids back to school, um, you know, for the beginning of this fall. Mayor? Yeah, I, I just wanted to say, um, hearing what um, Member Graham was saying, she wanted a list of the job descriptions added. Um, I agree with the comments that, that have been said thus far. Um, with the September 1st deadline, um, that will be right at the same time with potentially onboarding last minute um, hires. Um, but from an accountability perspective to know what the jobs are and the job descriptions. Um, we definitely have, you know, nothing to hide. We want to have that. We're in compliance with DESE. Um, but I guess uh, I'm just thinking we have a completely different platform called Frontline, which is where people apply for jobs. And we, you know, our HR wing of the district uses the Frontline system and so where you were saying that you also um, wanted something added to the website, I was actually going to be asking for greater clarity because I do think it's, it, I think it's something, if it's just giving you a list of jobs that were posted, um, I think that may be able to be doable. But I just think at this particular point in time, it's going to be a tremendous lift on our human resources department. And I know... Uh, Mr. Murphy probably could speak um, to that as well. The amount of stress that, you know, will happen just to get school started smoothly and how much activity takes place on the 1st of September. We don't really feel stress down at this end of the building. We don't, we don't even know what that means. But uh, <laughs> beyond, beyond that, what I would say is... Um, if, uh, Mayor, I, I promise it's only one slide, but if I could just show the org chart that we developed at the beginning of the year, I think, um, I, I just wanna say, I think this is a really important thing that we as an organization have to do and have to do soon. So um, the Ms. Graham and the superintendent used slightly different phrases and I just wanna get clarity as to what the intention here. If the idea is a list of the jobs, then I, uh, personally, uh, I don't have a problem with September 1st if it's a list of the jobs. If it's a collection of job descriptions, even ones that, to Ms. Graham's point, are antiquated and need to be adjusted, September 1st is not realistic in part because we're going to have um, obligations to confer with bargaining partners in many instances, and um, we're just not going to be able to dictate that short of a timeline while we're also... Um, involved in negotiations. So that, that would be my only hesitancy. This has to get done and it has to get done soon. 
the, the goal of this org chart is to eventually get to a place where by clicking on any of these departments or positions, you're getting to both sub org charts and ultimately to job descriptions. And then obviously we'll have a centralized list too for people that like, you know, the centralized list that that's another format that would be necessary. But this is absolutely a shared priority and something that we have to get to. Um, and again, if it's, if it's a list of jobs, um, we can, we can accommodate that, you know, October 1st would probably be better than September 1st, just because of the opening of school. And because there may be, there's oftentimes there are roles that are tweaked or changed just as school is beginning and we recognize, you know, where there are gaps that have to be filled. So I'd probably recommend a little bit later for just for the list. Um, but ultimately we have to get to a place where you can, any member of the community uh, can very easily go to the org chart click on an area of the organization, see how the, organi or the organization is structured and ultimately get to the individual job description for each position. And that's, that is absolutely an objective that we have and one that um, it's my hope that we'll be able to achieve in, in the coming months. But I, I, I'm not, I don't see a problem with just a list of the jobs. I just think for, so that we don't have to amend it two weeks later, I would say let's do it for October 1st. Member Rousseau, then Member Vandekloop, did you? Thank you, Mayor. Um, I, I'd just like to, uh, again, uh, motion to approve as amended uh, with the amendment to move the date to October 1st. Member Vandekloop? Uh, yes, and I would second that. I, I'm also just going to throw out one thing. Um, so, you know, I, I just, the terminology, um, professional staff, what, the rest of our staff is unprofessional? Um, there may be no way around it. It may just be the common thing, but I'm just going to mention it to say to me, it, it just sounds so funny. It, it might be worth amending to permanent staff um, with the with permanent being defined as not a temporary position we created to fill some gap for a three month period. And I don't think you necessarily we should be running to the school committee with, you know, to say that we have um, someone filling in three days a week to bridge a managerial gap. Um, we may have an existing temporary worker type uh, position, but I think the idea is it's a position that is not um, specific to a sort of a, a discrete project that's going to be completed. It is the positions with the type of durability that you would expect to be there until the needs of the organization change. And Mayor, the nomenclature actually comes from the existing policy. Yeah, I know. Um, and I was making an assumption that it was important because it seemed like an odd word to me too. So if it's not important, <laughs> I think permanent is fine. And to that point, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I'm missing part on my sheet, but it just says defined as department head, central staff, nursing, and then the sentence is incomplete. So I wouldn't even know what the rest entails. That should just probably be a period. And nursing, yeah. Oh, with an and. Okay, so motion for approval by Member Russo as amended to October 1st, 2021 for a comprehensive list and a list of the current job descriptions. Seconded by Member Vandekloot, roll call. Member Graham. Yes. Member Kretz. Yes. Member McLaughlin, yes. Member Mastone. Yes. Member Rousseau. Yes. Member Vanderpool. Yes. 
And Longo Karn. Yes, seven the affirmative, zero in the negative. The motion is approved as amended. Number three, on March 16, 2021, the Education Committee of the Mystic Valley Area NAACP sent the school committee a letter thanking us for our work this year on the following issues. A, the renaming efforts of the Columbus Elementary School. B, the end of out-of-school suspensions policy. C, the focus on hiring and recruitment of BIPOC candidates to teaching and administrative positions, as well as maintaining our current BIPOC staff members. I request that the letter be entered into the record and would like to read the letter in its entirety, offered by member Paul Rousseau. Thank you, Mayor. Um, so yes, yeah, so we received this, uh, the, well, the mayor's office received this letter um, on March 16th, um, and I will just read the letter. Uh, Dear members of the Medford School Committee, and then it lists us all. Uh, the Education Committee of the Mystic Valley NAACP would like to express its appreciation for the June 2020 decision of the Medford School Committee to erase and replace the name of Columbus from the Columbus School. The Education Committee agrees that Columbus's cruel, barbaric treatment of indigenous people disqualifies Columbus from being honored in this way. We applaud the democratic search process that has been established to find a more appropriate name for the school, once called the Mystic School in honor of the Mystic tribe who inhabited Medford before the colonial period. The Education Committee also lauds the school committee for the unanimous passage of the resolution eliminating out-of-school suspensions. For years, this destructive policy has disproportionately victimized black children and other children of color and special needs children. Medford's in-school alternatives and mandatory education is positive and welcome evidence of progress in the right direction. In addition, we understand that there is a commitment to recruit and maintain Black, Indigenous, and other people of color who will more accurately reflect the increasingly diverse Medford community as administrators and teachers and that school staff have received anti-racist trainings. The success of these initiatives will improve educational equity. While the evaluation of the clothing code has taken a backseat to the COVID-19 crisis, we trust that the school, Medford School Committee will, when possible, review and revise the clothing code to avoid the discrimination Black students and students of color identified at the Duggar Park rally last summer. Sincerely, the Mystic Valley NAAC, NAACP Education Committee, Eileen Lerner, Regina Keynes, Wendy Cliggett, Pearl Marison, Morrison, uh, Vincent Dixon, Erga Pierret, uh, Susan Girard, Jillian Harvey, and Greg Bartlett. Thank you. Thank you, Member Rousseau. Num number four, as required by Mass General Law, Chapter 71, Section 38M, that the school committee must designate a student outreach coordinator. The school committee hereby designates Dr. Peter Cushing, Assistant Superintendent of Secondary Education for Metro Public Schools, to the role of student outreach coordinator, offered by Member Rousseau. Members. Yes, Mayor. Um, thank you. I don't think there's too much to say other than um, this is in the statute um, and is related to integration of the student representatives and holding elections for student representatives. Um, so that's why I put this forward. And I hope that Dr. Edward Vincent doesn't mind that I pick somebody on her staff without actually having talked to her. Um, <laughs> but he, he seemed like the right candidate considering his role in, in secondary. So motion to approve. Second. Motion for approval by Member McLaughlin, seconded by Member Vandekloot. Roll call. Member Graham. Yes. Member Kratz. Yes. 
Member McLaughlin, yes. Member Yes. Yes. Member Rousseau, yes. Yes. Member Van de Kloot. Yes. Mayor Longo Kern. Yes, 70 affirmative, zero in the negative. Congratulations, Dr. Cushing. <laughs> More work. Number three, um, we have a number of condolences. If you don't mind if I read. Med Medford School Committee offers its sincere condolences to the family of Michael, of Edward Michael Hunt, father-in-law of Rosen Hunt, administrative assistant for athletics. Also, the Medford School Committee offers its sincere condolences to the family of Therese Sweeney, wife of the late James Sweeney, who was a longtime med teacher at Medford High School. Also, the Medford School Committee offers its sincere condolences to the family of Joan Lee Mullally, a teacher in the Medford Public Schools for over 30 years. If we all may take a moment of silence. Thank you. Motion to adjourn. Motion to adjourn by Member McLaughlin, seconded Second. by Member Graham, roll call. Uh, Member Graham. Yes. Member Kretz. Yes. Member McLaughlin, yes. Member Mastone. Yes. Member Rousseau. Yes. Member Van de Kloot. Yes. Melongo Kern. Yes, seven the affirmative, zero in the negative. The meeting is adjourned. Have a great night, everybody.